This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. So why don't we start, um, if you give us a bit of background as to your focus at the moment, what, what you're working on and, and how it relates to Socrates, perhaps. Oh, the main thing I'm working on at the moment, actually, is still a graphic novel about the life of Marcus Aurelius. It's kind of a follow-up to how to think like a Roman emperor. And I guess the thing about graphic novels is they take a, a really long time, take about twice as long or longer than, uh, than writing a regular book. It's oh, really? a long time to get the illustrations done. So I've been doing that for a while, but I'm also in the middle of running a, an e-learning course. I run several online courses. And for a few years, one of them is about Marcus Aurelius, and another one is about Socrates. I've been running that for a few couple of years so we've got a bunch of students doing that at the moment it's fairly in depth and listen I mean the story really it, it was probably best just to tell the whole story like when I was a kid I, I read for some weird reason I remember one of my girlfriends when I was about 17 had Plato's Republic um, on her bookshelf and I, that always stuck in my mind I was kind of surprised that she had that book when I was maybe 15 or 16 or something like that and I had no idea what I was doing I'm mm. not even sure why I picked it up I was just reading a lot at the time I was mainly interested in religion so I was reading a lot of stuff about kind of new age mysticism and Gnostic Christianity and uh, like you know a lot of stuff about Christianity I was learning a lot about Hebrew when I was a kid um, and uh, you know, I realized there were a lot of references to Plato and the stuff that I was writing, and I knew nothing about Plato. So I just picked up and started reading it, which now is, you know, I, I say I would recommend that people don't do that. You know, it's not the, the best way. Plato's Republic is really, yeah, I've got this aversion to long books, by the way. Mm. And Plato's Republic is pretty long. And I, I feel a lot of people pick it up, get a few pages into it, and then put it back down again. And, and, you know, the, they don't really kind of get into the subject for that reason. It's not the best point of entry in a sense. But, you know, what I always say about Socrates, and I need to say this right at the outset, because it really does color everything. For some weird reason, everything about Socrates is complex, more than any other historical figure I can think of. I love Marcus Aurelius, like I love Socrates, they're, they're kind of two of the figures that I'm particularly interested in. Marcus Aurelius, by comparison with Socrates, is so much more straightforward and one-dimensional. Mm. Socrates is this weird creature, and the, the Greeks called him atopos, which means, it's hard to kind of translate, but it means, it means weird. It means it literally it means out of place, like an alien or something. Mm -hmm. And everything you say about Socrates or his philosophy, you have to kind of qualify it by saying, yeah, but like there's kind of layer upon layer of meaning to it. So even the fact that he's a topos, like on the one hand, Socrates is the quintessential Athenian. He embodies classical Athenian culture. On the other hand, they thought he was an alien among them. And he stood out like a sore thumb. So there's kind of like these two, everything about him is paradoxical and yeah. ironic. We know that that's part of his character. But I always find no matter what perspective you approach him from, you always end up having to say, yeah, but like he's, he's this, but he's also kind of the opposite. 
And, uh, you know, I, I, I'll, let me tell, I'll tell you this little story briefly. Like, um, you know, I picked up Plato's Republic and I don't know if I got to the end of it when I was a teenager. I read some other stuff as well, like uh, some of the other dialogues. And then I went and studied Plato and Aristotle as part of my philosophy degree. And it was only really after graduating that I got really into classical philosophy more deeply, into mainly through Stoicism. But book one of Plato's Republic, yeah, but um, Plato's Republic is kind of dry. It, it's often believed to come from Plato's middle period. And it's believed that although Socrates, although Socrates is the character through which Plato speaks in the dialogues, uh, the Republic is full of Plato's ideas and many of the key ideas seem quite alien to Socrates. Mm. But book one of Plato's Republic is written in a completely different style from the, the rest of the, the, the other nine books. And book one, which you know is the entry point, uh, really stuck in my mind. <clears throat> it's much more colorful. It's much more dramatic. It's almost like it's been written by a different person. And it's believed to be more faithful um, to the, the real Socrates, the authentic Socratic philosophy. And, uh, you know, I, so I suggest to people, maybe read book one of Plato's Republic, but not the other nine books to begin with. Uh, read the Apology, like Plato's most famous text, and read book one of the Republic, perhaps as a kind of entry point. There's things in that book that just stuck in my head for the rest of my life, like three decades ago or something like that now. Yeah, I had a, um, had a similar experience. That's so funny. I had a girlfriend when I was about 17, and I think she was doing art history, and for some reason she had a book that had Socrates, and I can't even remember which one. And I just remember glancing at a couple of pages out of it while I was on the toilet. And just being blown away by, well, I, I guess it was my first introduction to Socratic method, just the way he asked questions about the most mm-hmm. fundamentally accepted truths. Um, that I, it was just, it wasn't even so much what he was asking, just the fact that he was asking. I, I wasn't in the right place in my life at the moment to really take on board how significant it was what I was reading and how bigger part that would play in my life you know in the years to come um it sounded like it kind of hooked you straight away and and yeah i didn't really know how to deal with it like i mean this is the socratic thing it's this is not how we would normally be talking about marcus aurelius or the meditations or something right so i i had the same experience i think a lot of people maybe read socrates and they, they they kind of think i don't know whether i like this or not i'm not really sure like it takes a lot of patience maybe to get through some of these dialogues and now I'm completely sold on it. You know, I it, it's like Shakespeare as well. You know, like I remember when I was a teenager trying to read Shakespeare and thinking this just seems really impenetrable to me. Mm-hmm. And then at university, I had to study Hamlet. And now I can kind of pick it up and read it because it, it takes some effort and training and background and perseverance to get into some of these texts. And, and then it's something that you have for life. I guess it would be a little bit like getting into classical music, right? You know, for some people, it maybe takes a little bit of patience. And, but then once you're into it, you're into it and you, yeah, it becomes more accessible to you. But there are other points of entry to Socrates' philosophy that make it kind of a little bit easier to get started, I think. So when I'm teaching it to people, I'll say, well, don't do what I did. You know, maybe, maybe you know, don't just pick up Plato's Republic and, and try and read it cover to cover. Like there, there may be other ways that you could get started looking at this. But I'll tell you, the other thing that really struck me was, 
um, I didn't know what I was looking for in it or what I was taking from it. Mm. And when I studied Plato at university, you know, I'll pick up books on it. There are many great books on Plato and, and Socrates, but um, I've never found one that really kind of approaches Socratic philosophy in the way that, that Socrates presented it to the students, for want of a better way of putting it. And I try to do that in my course, like to focus more on the practical side of it. Mm. On Socrates' um, thought as a lived philosophy, um, insofar as we can do that. And, you know, you, you, like, there are great books on Socrates, but they, they kind of, they really treat it, I don't want to say they approach it as a purely academic subject, but they kind of do. Um, they're, often they're trying not to, but they end up doing that anyway. And I think part of it, and I'm hesitant to say this as well, because I feel it sounds a little bit presumptuous, but because it, approaching it from the perspective of a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, there are things in it that I see that I don't think classicists see. And, you know, there are psychological insights that Socrates makes that jump out at me that seem very profound and very of, of great practical importance. And no one ever seems to me to mention them. Um, you know, I'll give you one very simple example, and there are many examples. Probably the most famous passage in the, in the Stoic literature is passage five in the Enchiridion of Epictetus, where it says it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. Mm. And that's quoted by all cognitive behavioral therapists, right? Sure. Well, and again, I have to say, yeah, but like basically, I, I think it looks to me like that came from Socrates. I don't think that the Stoics would have seen that as, as you know, an, an original um, insight on their part. It's just, I guess you could almost say it's a central psychological claim of Stoicism. It's not necessarily the centerpiece of their entire philosophy, but it's kind of the central psychological claim, at least of Epictetus's version of Stoicism, maybe of Stoicism in general, but really it's in Socrates. And, and I guess that leads us to another kind of technical point that I should mention. We're talking about Plato. Mm -hmm. So I find a lot of people will say, well, we only know about Socrates through Plato. And that's not true. We, we have Plato's dialogues. And again, yeah, but there's a mixed bag there because Plato's earlier dialogues are believed to be more faithful to Socrates, but the middle and later ones, like the uh, Republic, for example, are believed to kind of contain much of Plato's own ideas or ideas that he's drawn from other traditions like Pythagoreanism. Mm -hmm. So Plato's our main source, but it's also a kind of polluted source. But we also have many dialogues from Xenophon, who's one of, uh, who's an older student of Socrates, and maybe presents a, a, a more kind of authentic, a more faithful picture of Socrates. And also the Stoics were more interested, uh, a bit more interested in, in Xenophon's portrayal of Socrates. And then we have a few other kind of sources and fragments and stuff. So we, can, we don't have to just read Plato. Plato's kind of a separate thing. Um, a good example of that is philosophy students. And I apologize to, to people who aren't as familiar with, with philosophy. But in every single philosophy student's heard of Plato's theory of forms, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like that's one of the things you learn as an undergraduate. It's this metaphysical theory, and that's almost certainly got nothing to do with Socrates. Um, you know, Plato introduces that. It's more of a kind of metaphysical sort of Pythagorean doctrine. And so when people read Plato and when they read those dialogues, often they're thinking about the theory of forms 
that's what they're interested in, but it's not really getting anything to do with what, what Socrates was saying. Um, in fact, Aristotle at one point implies that he mentions that the, the theory of forms comes from Plato, and that's where it originated. And it, it's not mentioned in Xenophon in any of his dialogues about Socrates. So we, we can kind of, it takes a bit of effort, but we can kind of reconstruct from Xenophon and Plato and other fragments, and by discarding some of Plato, we can kind of try and reconstruct a picture of what Socrates was teaching. And when we do that, we end up with a philosophy that has a lot in common with Stoicism. Well, this, um, you know what, I realize we're almost getting a little ahead of ourselves because there's a question, I, I was thinking, you know, like at the start of this conversation of being Socratic and, and opening my mind to the idea that I know nothing at all. And already I, I was in the camp of all we know about Socrates is through Plato. So now I have to rethink that. Um, there's more to it. Yeah. Well, that I want to, I want to ask you a question that I already have an answer to, but I want to open my mind to another answer. Why should people care about Socrates? <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> Imagine somebody's listening and they've never even heard his name. Why should I care about this guy? Well, I, you know, the weird thing is when I talk about Socrates, I, I really feel like I'm becoming a bit of an evangelist or something, and I'm, I'll be a bit <laughs> shameless that, about yeah. that, you know. Um, and people don't seem to mind it too much for some reason. Mm -hmm. They... I, they, we have to care about Socrates, man. He is a figure of seismic importance in Western philosophy. I mean, he, he's, Socrates is dynamite. You know, he, he kind of really, his, not just his thought, but it's, again, that's this weird paradox that his thought and his life are inseparable. You know, they're so closely intertwined and he's such a complex and ambiguous figure, but he, he influences everything that follows. He really is like this kind of shadowy figure, um, you know, this kind of almost weird supernatural presence. Again, this sort of atopos thing that hovers in the background of Western philosophy. He's more than just a bunch of ideas. He, he also represents a, a character, a personality, and a guy who actually died for his beliefs. And his death actually mm -hmm. mattered. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, again, it's really odd. The, you know, the, the, everything about him is just so strange and compelling. But yeah, but it's also kind of inaccessible to people, partly for that reason. So I think he, he Socrates almost needs evangelists. He needs people to go out and kind of encourage others like to to say this is like shakespeare man you know it's it's so profound it's so beautiful and you need the teacher maybe to sometimes to get you into it you need someone to kind of encourage you and, and help make it more accessible because it, it might be off-putting at first but if you it's worth the effort to really get into this because there's so much to it and again it's like this reminds me of like uh, i watched billy conley once saying he was joking about how he was kind of one of the pioneers of alternative comedy and, and he was mm -hmm. joking about if somebody went to a Billy Conley gig and then they'd be laughing uh, and go home and their friends would say, you know, what was it like? And say, oh, it was hilarious. And they'd say, well, what, what, tell me some of the jokes he told. And they'd be like, I, I, I can't. Like, mm -hmm. you know, because it's just his banter, right? 
it's like Eddie is or something. There's, it's difficult to kind of pick out jokes that you could then go away and tell somebody. And it's like that with Socrates. And people say, well, what did Socrates actually teach? Sometimes it's kind of hard. There are things you can try and pull out. But it's more of the journey that matters with Socrates. You'll know the Socratic method famously often but not always ends inconclusively. Mm. And because it's mainly in the form of dialogues and Plato and Xenophon and his other followers, actually. Um, and by the way, you, you mentioned this, this kind of idea that people often have that it's, Plato is the main source. When, when Socrates, Plato was one of Socrates' younger students, right? And we're, we're told there were multiple Socratic sects after Socrates died. Um, according to one source, there were traditionally 10 separate Socratic schools or traditions that he spawned. And, and some of them sort of survived longer than others and were more influential than others. And actually, I think the, the Stoics, in a sense, were trying to kind of reconstruct Socrates' original philosophy by looking at several of the surviving Socratic traditions that were around in Athens a couple of generations later. But uh, so we take, we have these dialogues, they all wrote dialogues. And in them, you know, what we get, it's like Stoicism is kind of a, a bullet point version of Socrates. The, the Stoics arrive at these conclusions that they extract from Socrates and they, they try and put them into practice. Whereas Socrates wants us to kind of, he provides more of the arguments. He wants us to really get there ourselves. And, and mm. you know, so often people say, I like Stoicism, but I don't really know how to defend some of the conclusions. Well, put very, very crudely. I mean, we have less than 1% of the Stoic literature surviving today. So there maybe were more Stoic dialogues. Um, but often the Stoics are assuming philosophical arguments that were already laid out in the dialogues attributed to Socrates, right? Yeah. So that's one reason anyone that's interested in Stoicism, you should read Socrates because that's where you get the actual arguments from that, that justify some of the conclusions that the Stoics have arrived at. And if you're into Socrates, you should read the Stoics because then you get to see what it would look like to put these ideas into practice and to think through the implications of them for day-to-day -day life. So they, to me, they really are two sides of the same coin. They complement one another. Um, but yeah, we need to encourage people. And I, I, by the way, I'll just do my little evangelist, but I did this on, on Twitter the other day, actually. I do it periodically. During the pandemic, if people have time on their hands, I'll get this in now, right? Early. Yeah. I, I, without shamelessly, you know, I would encourage people. And I, again, paradoxically, I am constitutionally averse to recommending books to people, right? I don't really like to tell people, go and read this book. Yeah. But everyone should read Plato's Apology because it is a uh, literary and philosophical masterpiece. Mm. It is, without a shadow of doubt, one of the most important, probably the most important and influential philosophical text in the Western canon. I was lucky because I read it when I was about 15. I read it a number of times. Years and years later, I went back to my childhood home and I found in the bookcase a copy of it. And I'd forgotten how closely I'd read it. I went through it and I saw I'd underlined and written notes in it that I couldn't even remember having done. It was kind of eerie to see it. Hmm. Um, and I thought, wow, I guess I read this and forgot about it. But, you know, there's fragments of it that really stuck and remained with me. Plato's apology is 
you could read it in a couple of hours, right? And that's partly why I would recommend. It's one of the more accessible texts. It's, it's kind of, a, there's bits of dialogue in it, but it's really more of a monologue. And uh, it, it's got a lot more drama in it. Some of these dialogues are just two guys talking and some of them kind of consist more of a dramatic scene. Well, the apology is Socrates defending himself in court just before he, he's, he's sentenced to death. So it's a very dramatic scene and there's a lot of this kind of a bit more action going on and a bit more history and a bit more drama. So I, I would strongly recommend that, that people read the apology. And another reason for that is that it was one of the, it was kind of like, um, how could I, what could I compare it to? It's almost like the Bible or something in the pagan world. You know, it was like, Everybody had read the, every educated person had read Plato's Apology. And the Stoics all knew it. Uh, they, they all were very familiar with it. And it's one of the, the classical texts that they quote from or refer to most frequently. Um, so although they kind of prefer Xenophon in a way, they, they, this is kind of beyond um, partisanship or whatever. It's just a classical masterpiece. Like, and and they, they all know it and they, they can't help but refer to it. But you don't get sustained, you, don't, well, you, you do and you don't, you don't really get the same kind of sustained philosophical arguments in the apology, but what you get are lots of fragments of arguments. So people read it and they come away from it thinking, what is this crazy old guy going on about? Like he says some weird stuff and these arguments don't make sense, right? So you might read it once and come away from it thinking, this is weird, like why, what's going on in this text? But you'll remember it, maybe. And then years later, you'll think, actually, maybe he kind of sort of had a point when he said some of these things. Uh, it's a really strange experience, I think, to get into this stuff. But read the apology only takes a few hours to read. And so, you know, come on, it's, it's, it's worth it. Like, if you read nothing else, you know, read, read Plato's apology. Like, it's, you know, you, at worst, you've, you've wasted a couple of hours. But you know, it's it's what it's a masterpiece of Western philosophical literature. So there's a pretty good chance it's going to have some sort of impact on you. That's what I would say to all your listeners. Yeah, well, um, I'd back you on that. You know, I I, I had a lot of uh, my own sort of psychological issues in my early twenties, and you know, that stemmed from my childhood and teen years. And I'll never know what helped me the most. But one thing was that very, very basic Socratic premise, which is you never really know. You never really know. And that always stuck with me and drove me to be curious. Like there's always another way. There's always a better understanding. There's always a more accurate truth. And I can see people who don't have that fundamental understanding getting locked into very unhelpful perceptions and, and beliefs. Mm -hmm. And staying locked in because they just, I, I needed that external influence. Someone to say, are you really so sure? <laughs> you know, mm. and we go, actually, even if there's 1% doubt, then there's hope, you know, that this isn't a life sentence, whatever it is that I'm suffering from. Um, that's fascinating. Like, so that's kind of a, a, a more, there's different ways of reading Socrates. And that's the kind of more traditional skeptical reading of what he's saying, that he's advocating this kind of, uh, epistemological skepticism mm. and you're right right but even that paradoxically there's layer upon layer to this right i most i think most scholars look at that and think we're not even really sure about 
our interpretation of his skepticism. We're kind of skeptical about Socrates' skepticism because right. what he says even about that is kind of ambiguous and, you know, there, there's several levels to it. But essentially, you're right, that a big part of it, you cannot read Socrates without taking away the sense that everything is up for debate. Yeah, I think that was that was how I mostly interpreted it. Um, but what helped me was when I say everything's up for debate, I mean my own thoughts and beliefs were finally up for debate. I used to just take them at face value. And I think a lot of people live this way where they see their thoughts as some sort of memo from the truth. You know, they just, they get a thought and they go, well, that must be true. In fact, they don't even think that must be true. They just behave as oh. if it is. Whereas now, Absolutely. you know, my entire life I've been going, is it though? Could be just mm -hmm. bullshit. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, like, so, I mean, uh, oh gosh, what can you, where to even begin, you know, like even at the most <laughs> fundamental level, just this questioning method of Socrates, like just in the, in the simplest possible sense, it really was a huge upheaval. Um, there's so much we could just say about that, even in very broad terms. Look, Athenian culture was full of experts at the time. There were the natural philosophers that went around teaching people stuff about cosmology and so on. And then there were the main, the sophists in particular, uh, orators, rhetoricians, who became hugely wealthy and, and important. The, the name sophist means wise man or expert. And one of the peculiar things about Socrates, one of the ironies about him, was that he, he followed the sophists around. He went to listen to them talk and lecture. But he refused to call himself a sophist. He said, I'm not, I'm not a wise man or an expert. Um, and implicitly, he casts himself more in the role of, the role of a, a, a permanent student, yeah. a perennial student. And, and so, you know, the thing about the sophist was they would lecture and they didn't really take that many questions. But Socrates was known for this question and answer method. And he reminds me of this guy. It's like he's in a classroom. He's a student in a classroom. And he's just asking the most penetrating and insightful and amazing questions of the teacher that all the students are kind of turning around and end up paying more attention to this guy at the back of the room and the questions that he's asking than they're paying attention to the teacher, if that makes sense. That's kind of what's, how Socrates comes across. And as soon as you say that, you go, well, he must have been really annoying to some of these teachers. And he, yeah, he was. You know, that's partly why he ended up being executed. You know, there are several reasons why he ended up being executed, but part of it is very simply just that he asked a lot of questions and rocked the boat, and that really did annoy people. And again, to, you know, the other thing that you've said is you've kind of implied this idea of a kind of arrogance or a conceit um, to, to, to kind of rigidly holding on to certain ideas dogmatically. Mm. Socrates literally describes the method, the Alenchus, the Socratic method, as a therapy. It's a psychological therapy and he he clearly says like it's specifically for curing conceit or arrogance so he said right that's what i'm doing i'm a therapist i'm going around curing people of this kind of intellectual arrogance or conceit that prevents them from being he, he describes it as blocking learning um you know it prevents them from learning it's kind of like um Today, we would say it prevents people from being open-minded enough to learn things. You know, mm -hmm. he doesn't quite put it in those terms, but that's essentially what he's saying. And, uh, you know, he by puncturing people's conceit, he pissed off a lot of people 
because he kind of made some of them look stupid. Um, and so they either loved him for, for it or they really hated it. And again, you know, this is the paradox of Socrates. Was he just a kind of agitator or a teacher or kind of a bit of both? And the other really, this is an aside actually, but another really weird thing, there's so many weird layers upon layer to this. And again, it's so bound up with the culture and his life. Another really bizarre thing about Socrates. We, our, I said uh, Plato is one of our sources and there were these other 10 sects that wrote dialogues, most of which are lost now, but we have a, cu- a couple of fragments. Um, but the earliest historical source for Socrates is Aristophanes, the comedy playwright who ridiculed him. And he mentions Socrates in three separate plays. But the most famous one, or the biggest one, is The Clouds, which is a satire that's all about Socrates just ridiculing him as a philosopher. And that was written during Socrates' lifetime, way before any of these Socratic dialogues were written. And so on the one hand, it's our most important historical source because it, it, it was during his lifetime, it was written earlier. The, the dialogues were, we believe, written after Socrates died. But also it's a very unreliable source because it's a satire, it's a caricature of him and it clearly blends his, it portrays him as a sophist and, mm. and also as a natural philosopher. It's kind of mishmash of different things. Um, and the really weird thing about this is that in the old comedy as it's known, there was a traditional formula where you have these two figures, stereotypical stock characters, and one of them is called the Aeron, and he's like a buffoon. He's often like an old man. Um, he's a bit of a dimwit. He's maybe like a bit of a yoko, but he's the underdog that usually kind of, in a way, gets the upper hand. Mm-hmm. And then there's a pretentious character called the Alazon, um, who is a kind of portrays himself as being an expert, like, being kind of morally righteous or whatever. And he's usually, his arrogance is usually kind of punctured by this kind of buffoon, right? And that's where the comedy comes from. You've got someone being a bit up themselves and being a bit pretentious, and they're taken down a peg or two by somebody who's just a a yokel or a dimwit. And maybe people coming in from the countryside related to this underdog character, and they wanted to see these pretentious kind of educated city types being taken down a peg or two. So you can kind of understand where this came from. Now, Socrates is the Aaron character. Mm. Like, he kind of absolutely, everything about it, like the way he talks, even also the fact that he was kind of an old beard. Like, Athenian society worshipped the male form. Like, they were obsessed with athleticism and uh, the idea of male beauty. And so, again, I mean, we kind of almost take this for granted, but they thought of Socrates as being really odd because he was, a, a, he was ugly. Um, and they talk about this a lot. Like, he's the, they fell in love with him, um, and he became a, a, a kind of iconic figure to him. But in total contrast to the other figures that were iconic, like, they, they, they were obsessed with male beauty, and here was this guy that they were all talking about and obsessed with. It was an ugly middle-aged or elderly man. Um, and a bit kind of overweight and balding, and he had the kind of pug nose. I mean, Plato says that Socrates had a nose like a, a face like a torpedo fish, and he compares him to a satyr. And, 
again, a kind of comedy, a buffoonish character. And even Xenophon says that Socrates had eyes like a crab. Like, so they're, they're kind of fixated on this idea that he's, he's ugly, but they fall in love with him. And so he's like this buffoonish caricature figure in the old comedy. And so they want to take him seriously as a philosopher, but also they see him as, as they can't get away from the fact that he resembles this kind of stereotypical comedy character that they see on stage. And then layer upon layer of paradox, in, in Aristophanes' clouds, the roles are reversed. And Socrates is the Alazon character. Like, he's this pretentious intellectual. And the other character is kind of bringing... He's down a peg or two. Like, this kind of yokel, uh, this little buffoon character. Where, you know, actually the person in the play that's taking Socrates down a peg or two probably had more in common with the real Socrates. Right. It's, it's very... The whole thing is intriguing and, and, and very puzzling. You know, but you, in those dialogues, the way that Socrates is portrayed is straight out of, like, their most popular form of comedy. It's bizarre. Everything about, everything about Socrates is bizarre and paradoxical and puzzling. There's a... There's complex. A kind of, yeah, there's a kind of timelessness to a lot of those things. Like, I was just thinking even everything from the way the public focuses on aesthetics and can't get their head around like past that until somebody's really impresses them. Um, but you know what really stood out to me? The story of his death. Mm. You know, a guy essentially executed for annoyingly prodding at the truth. I mean, you'll know as a therapist how people react when you start opening doors to things they don't want to acknowledge that are helpful for uh-huh. them but they have no interest in taking responsibility, you know, for their behavior or whatever it is. And there's something about that. Like on a grand scale, you had an entire community say, we don't want to talk about this because then we have to change who we are. So we're just mm-hmm. going to shut you up now. There's something kind of yeah. tragic and timeless. Like when I apply Socratic method myself, you know, working with clients, you can see, you know, that desire for an execution sometimes come up you know, where they'd like, yeah. stop poking at that thing. I don't want to know. He asked too many questions and he rocked the boat and he upset some important and powerful people. This is like a, a kind of a simple way of putting it. But also, I mean, a lot of it weirdly reminds me of social media. Don't you kind of think, you know, like the way that people get really angry um, with, with other people on the internet, there's something about the anger that people experience on, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever towards people that are questioning them or people with whose opinions they disagree. Um, that reminds me of the anger of, of Socrates' prosecutors, the guys that wanted them executed. Mm. Like, it goes, it seems odd to us how much they hated him. Um, and, you know, like political figures in America, for example, like the hatred that people have towards them it's like this intense burning hatred that they had towards Socrates. You know, it goes beyond just like, oh, he, he, he kind of made me look stupid or, or he, he asked me a question and I couldn't answer it or something. They, they just absolutely want to destroy him. Like he's, he's kind of become this all-consuming figure for them in a way. Um, and it, you know, like it kind of reminds me of that in a way. And the, the other thing I keep saying to people, I need to kind of drop this into the conversation. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. I don't know what to make of this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. 
Sure. So Socrates goes on and on about the sophists, and he's always warning his students against the sophists. And as a student, you read that, and you think, oh, that, that's interesting. Cool, this was a thing in ancient Athens. There were these guys that went around, and you know, Socrates is saying, yeah, don't be one of them, and, and you, know, you need to question things and look for the truth, rather than being swept away by all the emotive language and the rhetoric. And you think, oh, that's interesting. But history, that's interesting. Well, you know what? It, it's like the take out the word sophist and replace it with Facebook, social media, mm. um, you know, news media, right? All the stuff like when people, when I hear people today saying we're bombarded with fake news, we're bombarded with political propaganda through the, the news media. Like, you know, we're constantly in this battle now, like with the truth on social media, mm. like, and all the misinformation that's spreading. I think this reminds me a lot of Socrates in the Sophists. Like mm. what he was saying about the Sophists, a lot of it now is just social media. Social media is the modern Sophist. It's the digital Sophist, right? It works through algorithms now. You know, that's all. It's basically the same problem. Like they'll tell you whatever they think you, like they need to tell you in order to get your attention. Socrates said, you guys, the problem with you guys to the Sophists as he says, you earn money by speaking to huge audiences of people. And so you'll tell them whatever they want to hear, right? Mm. Truth goes out the window. And he said, the, and the other really important thing that Socrates says in one of Plato's dialogues is that he says, sometimes you guys sound like philosophers. You talk about virtue and you say all the same things. He said, but you're fundamentally, you're the opposite because mm. you're doing it for a fundamentally different reason. He goes, sometimes two things can look the same but they're not the same because their underlying motivation is completely in conflict. He goes, you, you might even quote philosophers. You use the same arguments and stuff, but you're saying it to impress an audience, not in order to try and get to the truth. Like, and you're, you don't want to live in accord with virtue. You just want to be perceived as living in accord with virtue. And so though often you look the same, like fundamentally you're moving in the opposite direction. And so that's the reason we have to be doubly cautious about you guys. And, you know, he said, it's all driven by applause. Well, today we say it's all driven by likes on social media, right? And social media influencers will say whatever they think is going to get them the biggest reach and the most likes, right? And it's exactly the same. Like Socrates said, you know, truth goes out the window. Like, you know, sometimes people aren't going to like the things that I say or the questions that I ask. Like, but you guys are fueled. The electricity that you run on, like, is public acclaim. And that literally, the, the sophists would compete against each other, like, to see who would get the most applause. Like, it's a competition for the attention of the crowd, and truth goes out the window. It's exactly the same as social media today. Yeah, you know, you're actually making a really good point around, you know, there's a... <laughs> Socrates wasn't just complaining about people who are showing off. There's actually a real danger to the sophism. And, and, you know, I was, I was just reminded, I saw a video recently where someone was talking about um, Donald Trump and how essentially he's, he's very much able to read the crowd, you know, kind of read where he's getting likes and go in that direction. That's kind of his specialty whether it's conscious or unconscious. And this person actually made a reference to Hitler and how the beginning of Hitler's career was very much the same. He basically found out what got the biggest applause and 
you know, doubled down. And there's a kind of a theory that that Hitler, his his you know the worst of his ideas that that manifested in the most carnage were essentially fed to him through applause. Mm. He he learned what would work rather than coming up with it on his own. And so there's there's some theory that you know the the horrors that followed were actually something he learned from the crowd rather than something he gave to the crowd. Who knows the truth? There's, of that, there's a lot of validity. I mean, that's political populism, basically, mm-hmm. in a word. And you know, that's like the danger that the ancient Athenians were very, like, very aware of. Like, if you just then you end up like the crowd works on emotion, mm-hmm. like, and so orators will just whip up anger and resentment. And the easiest way to do that is to find a scapegoat, like the Jews or whoever, yep. you know. And like the easiest way to manipulate a crowd is to create a hate figure. Yeah, again, like today, you see that on social media all the time. Reason goes out the window, like, and then it's easy to get people's attention and to gain their support, for, like, get them behind a cause like that. You just need to pick somebody to persecute, like, you know, and everybody will be behind you. Like, it's like that's how politics, in a sense, has always had this David, this risk of populism running through it. Yeah. Um, but you know, like you know, this is uh, this is something that I think it's not obvious at first. But then you get more familiar with the classical text, you start to see these ways in which it kind of resonates with the situation that we're in today. It's very. We started off by saying, you know, why should people read Socrates? Like it's so to me, in a way, it's a little bit tricky to explain because, like I say, it's this complexity to it and ambiguity to it and layers of meaning. But Socrates, to me, seems like the most relevant philosopher in the world. Like mm. today, I kind of I feel agree. like we have to we have to read this and and I, the, all the stuff again. Stoicism, every Stoicism, you know, people will say is relevant. Everyone's interested in Stoicism. It's trending at the moment. Um, but it's Socrates that gave birth to Stoicism. Like he provides the philosophical arguments that get as they are. So if people look around them and think during the pandemic, you know, during this problem that we're having with fake news and being manipulated by social media and and so on, like we, you know, stoicism seems to kind of provide a remedy. Like, well, like it's it's Socrates really. We need to dig deeper and get right back to Socrates because that's really the essence, right at the very core, the beginning of the philosophical tradition. Like he's the originator of this kind of like attempt to to rise against sophistry, like and defend ourselves against this kind of the propaganda, the brainwashing, and and so on that was. Uh, beginning to kind of penetrate Athenian society in which we're, you know, like we've had to face throughout history. It's philosophy that, that kind of offers us like a, a way of, of fighting back against that. And they also the idea from another point of view, uh, I, to come back to what you said earlier, you know, about Socrates and, and the skepticism of Socrates, the other paradox is Socrates has a positive philosophy, right? So in, uh, we, again, we mentioned the apology. In the Apology, Socrates seems to be promoting the Socratic method as this kind of scepticism, you know, I know only that I know nothing. But then at the same time, throughout the Apology, he clearly seems to be saying that he has positive ideas about ethics, about the, the idea that virtue is the only true good. Um, and the culmination of the Apology is him telling his friends what how he wants them to care for his sons after he's dead. And he says, look, if they seem to 
believe that they know things that they don't really know. I want you to puncture their arrogance. Again, I want you to carry on doing the thing I'm being executed for. I want you to carry on doing on my behalf with my sons. And I want you to benefit them by puncturing their arrogance, by taking them down a peg or two. Again, like ironically, paradoxically, how are you going to look after my sons? How are you going to benefit them? My, by criticizing them, like by questioning them, by puncturing their conceit, by proving to them that they're wrong about things. It's a kind of paradoxical way of helping them. But then he goes on to say, if they seem to value wealth more than virtue, like I want you to question that. So there's this positive doctrine rises up again that virtue is the only true good. And, uh, you know, obviously that's a central doctrine of Stoicism and it's very timely again today. You know, people are very, feel that celebrity culture and consumerism and the narcissism of social media is all bullshit. You know, we're surrounded by these bullshit values. And it was the same in the ancient world. People looked around and they, they'd have a crisis like an existential crisis every so often and think, what is this world all about? People are running around like headless chickens. Like they want the latest iPhone. They want a fancy car. They want the most likes on social media. And like, clearly this isn't what life is about. Mm. Like, you know, all of us, you know, like potentially just need to pause for a moment and realize this is all bullshit, you know, and we've been brainwashed into believing it. And, we're in, you know, it's constant through advertising, social media, like we're getting bombarded with this propaganda to buy into consumerism and stuff like that, right? To buy into the values of the society that we've created, which no one in their right mind actually believes are genuine, like authentic, rational values. Mm -hmm. Like we've created this fog, this miasma, this kind of hall of mirrors, that surrounds us like and we all know that it's bullshit everybody knows it like and socrates was one of the first people to call that out and to say you know we need to start questioning this we need to start tearing down this hall of mirrors a bit at least on a personal level like and penetrating through it realizing that this isn't the real world you know like it's just a it's a smoke and mirrors game like and we're all stuck in it together but we shouldn't believe it like it's not, this is not what wealth, health, reputation, all that stuff. That's not really the goal of life. We all know that in our heart of hearts. Well, you know, I think this is why Socrates is such a big figure in my life is because <clears throat> on, on paper, it seems to be a paradox. Like I know nothing, but I know virtue is the greatest good. And in my experience, in practical application, it doesn't turn out to be a paradox like if you start from a position like i don't really know anything so let's start with that you end up with virtue as the greatest good or what i would call integrity or living by your values there's lots of ways to call it it's i think that's the thing that always struck me about socrates is he seemed to have stumbled upon not just a universal truth but a way to get to it and you get to it by first uh, putting yourself in a position where you detach from any presumption about what it is. And then it kind of occurs to you through constant questioning. So like, it doesn't surprise yeah. me that he ended up coming to a, like you say, a positive conclusion that he's very certain of, because a similar thing happened to me and I've seen it happen with my clients as well is if you just 
give someone that basic running start of you don't know anything and what you've been taught is just bullshit. So start over again. They do tend to find their way to the same place that everybody else finds their way to this kind of virtue place. That doesn't mean they can always live by it, but an understanding that no, that's the way I'm supposed to be living, not this other shit. That's, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, again, like we don't know for sure. And there's maybe the texts are ambiguous, but that's part of the fun of studying this subject. Sure. But the one way of reading Socrates, certainly, one way that many people have mentioned in the past is that this positive doctrine about virtue so, seems to survive the Alenkis. Like, So he's saying like, we need to question everything, particularly what he's really interested in questioning are our definitions of the highest good as he puts it, or the virtues. So he'll go to politicians and ask them what justice is. And he, always, he tends to pick things that are relevant to people's lives. He'll go to military commanders and get them to define courage. He'll go to priests and get them to define piety. He'll go to poets and get them to define beauty. Like, so these things that embody are like core values that relate to someone's life interests or their career. And then, you know, he'll quickly show that they don't even understand what beauty is, and yet they're a poet by profession. Mm. Like, he'll show that they're a politician by profession, but they've got no idea what justice is. He'll show that they're a military commander, but they couldn't even tell you what courage consists in. Like, and he, you know, he tears these things down through questioning, and so the seeds of doubt uh, in his interlocutor's minds. But he's always kind of spiraling around or heading towards this nuanced kind of answer. He doesn't usually always kind of get there, but he usually kind of half gets there. And one way of reading it is he's kind of implying that there is a conclusion that survives the questioning. Hmm. Like there's a, there's maybe there's a definition that's hard to put into words. We're kind of, we have to be spiral around it or kind of get, progressively closer to it even if we never absolutely get to that definition maybe we can't even put it into words but by discarding by breaking down all of these false definitions all these inadequate definitions we get kind of closer to grasping what he would basically say that the goal of life or the supreme good you know what he's approaching is a definition of it in terms of wisdom and i mean it's there in the and again it's hidden in broad daylight right it's there in the very name of philosophy. Like philosophy means the love of wisdom. Like, and so Socrates is, you know, what's the highest good? Nobody knows. Well, it's obviously wisdom, Socrates. You've told us that already because it's in the very name of the thing that you're doing, right? Mm. Like you're, you're call, going around calling yourself a lover of wisdom and then you're going, what's the most important thing in life? What should we all love? Like, but then what is that wisdom? In the Platonic dialogues, that's thrown into question then. You know, in a number of ways, in different dialogues, he starts to go, well, it's not wisdom in general. It's not knowledge in general. It's a very specific definition of wisdom. It's a particular type of moral wisdom like, that we're interested in. I, I think, I mean, a more practical answer to this would be that the apology gives you little kind of nuggets, fragments of argument. In a way, for people that are interested in this philosophy and interested in Stoicism, the most important dialogue I tend to think is the Euthydemus and it, it's it's a harder dialogue to read. It's longer. It's more all over the place. It's more inconclusive. Um, but it's the one that kind of contains the clearest and most direct attack on this definition of the supreme goal of life. And it kind of sets the stage for stoicism. 
And in it, I mean, I'll get the abbreviated version of this argument that goes all over the place is that Socrates uh, gets one of his interlocutors to define what good fortune consists in. This is the abbreviated version. Mm-hmm. And again, another reason that so people put down the Socratic dialogues is that Socrates, part of his questioning style, he, and he does do certain formulaic things. And, and one of them is he, he always starts off by asking people to provide a verbal definition. And so he, he goes for a, like a, a definition of what a, a good life consists in, and then it becomes a definition of what good fortune consists in. And it usually starts off being banal. This is one of the odd things about Socrates. So his interlocutors are often start off kind of frustrated because they're like, this is a dumb question. Mm. What does good fortune consist in? It consists in having a lot of money, like being good looking, uh, having status, coming from a noble family, having good health, being fit and strong, like having lots of people that like you. And so they're able to kind of rattle off these lists and they're like, this is like, this is like just, is this a rhetorical question? It's like a dumb question. Everybody knows the answer to this. Mm-hmm. And so I feel sometimes when people are reading those dialogues, they, they give up at that point. So like, I've read like six pages of this so far and, you know, they're just kind of like discussing these banalities in a way. You know, it's uh, partly the style is a bit more long-winded than we're used to today. But then Socrates will do the opposite and he'll, he'll turn everything on its head. So he'll allow people to give these provisional answers that, that seem banal and, and seem like stating the obvious. And the, but then he goes on to say, well, let's take wealth, okay? So you're suggesting that that constitutes good fortune. But what happens if you give wealth to uh, a vicious tyrant? Like, surely they're just going to use it to do bad things. Like, surely wealth is really just an opportunity. And whether you use it for good or evil will depend on your character. Or whether you use it wisely or foolishly will depend on your character. It's like what people say about coffee. It allows you to do stupid things more quickly and with more energy, right? Right. If you give wealth to a a serial killer, it's just going to allow them to do more terrible things more quickly and more effectively. Like if you give wealth to somebody who's wise and virtuous, it's going to allow them to do more wise and virtuous things. It just gives all it does is extend your control over your environment. And so, right, he, like an amplifier. Length, yeah, it's like an amplifier. It just gives you opportunity, right? But it's not intrinsically good. It could be opportunities to do stupid and evil things, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, he, he says to his interlocutor, like, this is true of everything else that you've mentioned. Like, sort of noble birth, good reputation. All of these things really just give you more control over other people and over your environment, right? And so if you imagine someone who's a sort of genocidal dictator, if they have good reputation and lots of friends and allies and stuff, that's a bad thing, like, because it just allows them more leverage over other people to do more genocidal and sociopathic things, right? It's just an, it just extends their, their control over other people and over the world, and, and it depends how they use it. So he, he arrives at this conclusion that these things are all morally indifferent, like water, you know, you could use it to produce uh, hydroelectric uh, power for a hospital, or you could use it to boil your granny al- alive, you know. Mm-hmm. In itself, it's neither good nor bad. It depends how you use it. And so he says, all of the things that you've named is constituting good fortune, are actually morally indifferent. 
play and what matters is the use that you make of them. And, you know, and he never even properly arrives at this conclusion. But it is, it's clear that the conclusion that he's spiraling around is this idea that the only truly good thing would consist in the moral wisdom to know how to use everything else well. Mm. And therefore, and again, you kind of think, is that what you think? Hang on a minute. He's told us this right from the outset because it's in the very name of philosophy itself. It's, that's why it's called love of wisdom right mm-hmm. so he's kind of hidden you know it's like he's wearing it on his sleeve as it were it's obvious what he, the conclusion that he's trying to get to but in none of the dialogues does he ever really kind of like explicitly land on it and then when he does he even begins to kind of question it a little bit you know but he's spiraling around it. it's clear the direction that this argument is heading in and it's also very clear what the connection is with stoic philosophy this is the premise of stoic philosophy you know, that all of these things are what the Stoics call indifference or externals, and, and the only true good is arity or moral virtue. And by the way, I would translate arity not as virtue. We have to accept that translation because it's so pervasive, but I think a more helpful translation would be moral wisdom, like because the Stoics and Socrates believed that all of the virtues are forms of wisdom, and in the other dialogues he argues about that at great length. You know, it was all over the place trying to justify that that intellectualist um, theory of virtue. Um, but for Socrates, arity, virtue, is all moral wisdom. Here's a little, another little aside for you, by the way. One of the reasons that Socrates was executed, in my view, is that the Athenians traditionally believed that virtue was mainly possessed by noble men. So they didn't really think that women could possess arity to the same degree. Slaves certainly didn't typically possess arity. Um, it was mainly, it was a prestigious thing that was mainly associated with noble birth. Noblemen possessed arity or virtue paradigmatically. And so by arguing that virtue was uh, a form of wisdom, Socrates was able to argue, and again, he does this in a very roundabout and ambiguous way, but one of his favorite arguments is whether virtue is teachable. And that's a hand grenade to Athenian society, right? Because yeah. if virtue is teachable, if, it, if, if virtue is a form of wisdom, and if it's therefore teachable, then it's not the sole possession of the aristocratic class. And women could be virtuous, and slaves could be virtuous, and foreigners could be virtuous. And, you know, like poor, ugly, destitute, you know, individuals like Socrates could potentially be virtuous and maybe aristocrats you know lack this wisdom and that can be exposed and this is explosive like this aspect of socrates isn't always kind of really highlighted but one of the reasons that he was executed was he was turning athenian society on its head and you know questioning this idea about the the value of noble birth and you know one of the things that socrates is famous for is doing philosophy with women doing philosophy with slaves um, and doing philosophy with immigrants, uh, prostitutes. Um, one of Socrates' most famous students, the Phaedo, um, is one of the most famous Platonic dialogues. Phaedo or Phaedo is uh, a male prostitute uh, who was uh, captured and enslaved and forced to work in a brothel. And he became the author of many Platonic dialogues. Again, we're coming full circle. All these things are kind of interconnected. But I said there were other Socratic sects. One of them was founded by Phaedo. All of his dialogues are lost now. 
Um, but he was one of Socrates' most important uh, students. And Socrates rescued him from slavery in a brothel. So the idea that Phaedo could be virtuous would have been shocking. Well, this is... The Athenians of noble birth. Yeah, yeah. This is, again, it's another timeless thing where celebrities are given uh, kind of... I mean, you can see it. Celebrities leading very, very harmful or unscientific movements and people believe them just because they're celebrities and then the opposite being true as well. If somebody's low-born by modern standards, they're given less credit and yet they could be far more virtuous. You know, it's, um, I think one of the things I have to deal with with my clients a lot is, is jealousy and envy they have for their idols. And... Mm-hmm. I credit Socrates with planting the seed in my mind to look closer at people who are doing well by society standard to see if they are actually doing well. And you don't have to scratch that surface very hard. You know, look at celebrity suicides. How do you explain that? If celebrity Mm -hmm. really is a great lifestyle, you know, the modern version of the noble birth. Um, And I, I could see this, I could see like, well, why are they in and out of rehab? Why do they all get divorced? You know, if they're really living the great life, why do they appear to be suffering so much? Maybe they don't have it all sorted, especially when the janitor down at my work seems to be loving his life. You know, like maybe this class thing uh, doesn't make that much of a difference. Now, I wanted to I wanted to check in with you personally, actually. And I don't know, this might be too big a question to answer. But when you look at the the, the teachings of Socrates, what stands out to you as something you've applied to your own life or has impacted you most and, and given you direction? From the teachings of Socrates as a whole? Well, actually, I find that a, a difficult question to answer because I originally, I guess I've read the Platonic Dialogues and I'd read a bit of Xenophon. And, but then I mainly immersed myself in the Stoics. So my reading of Socrates is very much coloured from the Stoic right. perspective. And so what I take from Socrates is, is probably a lot of what I also take from Stoicism. And I mean, I think one of the main things, again, we mentioned this earlier, is because I'm involved in cognitive therapy, the cognitive theory of emotion and the idea that it's not thinking, it's not events that upset us, but our, our opinions about them. Mm-hmm. And again, to, I guess to come full circle in terms of our, our, the little story about this, like when I read Plato's Republic in book one of it, Socrates describes this, uh, or actually it's his interlocutor, um, uh, Cephalus, the guy he's talking to, um, it expresses the same view. Um, it's an odd little story about, he's a very elderly man, and Socrates says to this guy, um, he asks him this really odd question. He says, look, you're, you're reaching the end of your life. You're an old man. And he goes, uh, at the time, Socrates was a few decades younger. Um, this guy was a wealthy immigrant. He owned a, a fa- an arms factory, produced shields and weapons. Um, and Socrates said to him, it's like you're a traveler who's been on a journey that I'm about to embark on and you've already surveyed the terrain that's ahead of me and he he said so it it would be prudent for me to ask you what it's like and so he's saying I'm going to be old one day so I wanted to ask you what it's like 
And Catholic says, well, you know, birds of a feather flock together. So there's a lot of my friends are old guys as well. And he goes, and what I notice about them is that they're always complaining. They're always going on about their back aches and stuff and their aches and pains and, you know, how they're not able to do the things they were able to do when they were younger and blah, blah, blah. And he says, but, you know, the thing is that I, he goes, I'm pretty contented. Like, I, I'm quite happy. He goes, I, he says that he's lost his sex drive and he says, well, you know, I've got more time for conversation now. He goes, it's actually a relief. He goes, it's like being unchained from a madman. <laughs> he, goes, he says, in my youth, I felt I wasted a lot of time running after women, and now I'm not interested in it anymore. You know, I, I view that as kind of a relief in a way. It's not important to me now. You know, I feel like conversation is more important. And so he has this weirdly positive view, uh, even about the, the things that he, he's lost, as it were, in old age. And then he says to Socrates, he goes, what this tells me is, he says, it, it's not the thing itself like old age and aches and pains and, and the loss of sex drive, he goes, it's your attitude towards it that determines whether you're happy or not. And then they go into this conversation in even more depth, actually, than the, than the, the Stoics do. It becomes quite interesting. But that, I, that conversation really stuck with me. I always remember it from reading it as a kid. And that, that's had one of the biggest influences on me. It made me realize yeah, like it's not the things that people complain about in life. You'll always find somebody else in the same situation who views it as an opportunity, who isn't upset by it, isn't depressed by it. And so, as Kefla says, it must be the different. The difference must be their attitude towards it. And again, to bring to bring everything round in a circle again, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we talk a lot about how difficult the pandemic is and it's a challenge everyone's in stoicism has become popular because everyone thinks this the pandemic is a big challenge to us but weirdly most of the people that i've spoken to see it in many ways as having been good for them it reminds me of a lot of british people like older the generation would would say kind of almost embarrassed like the the, the people that lived through the blitz or through the second world war um you, you know would say weirdly it was kind of the best time of my life mm. you know although on the one hand it was a terrible catastrophic thing i was actually much happier like you know I, I can think of guys like comedians like spike milligan and you know a lot of people that came through the second world war was saying the camaraderie of it and it gave us something to really focus on and unite around and you know like looking back on it it it, it was it was i was happy weirdly like although i was living through a catastrophe so i find that with the pandemic like a lot of the people that i'm speaking to people a lot of people with mental health problems not all of them but a lot of people with mental health problems say that they feel better mm -hmm. during the pandemic and many people are saying well their lifestyle has changed in in a positive way like they you know they're embracing a more minimalist lifestyle they've got more time to focus on self-improvement and things they value. And, and so it's actually given a lot of people an opportunity to change their, their daily routine. And so again, the, the thing in itself isn't necessarily catastrophic for us, but you know, like I, what I say to people is like, actually, and I don't mean this in any way to trivialize things. I, I believe for what it's worth from my, my perspective as, as a therapist and my interest in health research, that m like the majority of people have underestimated how serious this pandemic actually is that's my view mm -hmm. right for what it's worth maybe i'm wrong about that but so i certainly i can remember and people still are saying it's no worse than seasonal flu 
well, that's definitely not true, yeah. right? The number of people that have now died in America is way in excess of the average number of people that die from seasonal flu. And that's just in about six weeks or so, mm-hmm. right? So there's no way that idea is completely blown out of the water now. People are still saying it. So it seems to me right out the gate that a lot of people are underestimating this. Nevertheless, coronavirus or COVID-19 is almost certainly not going to kill you, right? Mm. It's going to kill a lot of people and has killed a lot of people, but it's still a very small percentage. Individually, you're much more likely to die of something else, like is what I would say to the majority of people. So we're all living through this pandemic together, although it's unlikely that this is the thing that's going to kill us. And it's probably not even the worst or most challenging situation that most of us are going to live through. I hate to break it to you, you know. Mm-hmm. For many people, it's just an opportunity to kind of rethink their values and come to terms with their own mortality. And those are potentially good things. For other people, you know, maybe it's going to lead to mental health problems. Like maybe they're going to really struggle to deal with this situation. But again, it's not the event itself. It's our attitude towards it. Same as with Kephalus. Some of those guys were tortured by old age and worried about it. Like, but this guy that Socrates was talking to was weirdly contented. He was happier. Old age was the best time of his life. Mm-hmm. Like, and he said, it's all about your attitude towards it, like, the perspective that you adopt on it. It's no coincidence, by the way, that in passage five of the Enchiridion, when Epictetus says, it's not things that upset us, it's our opinions about them. And that everyone knows that quote. But the next sentence that follows it, no one ever quotes. And he says in the next sentence, uh, for example, if death in itself were intrinsically terrible, then everybody would be appalled by it. But men like Socrates were not. Mm. And so it's no coincidence he then refers immediately to Socrates as an example. And in fact, he's basically, he's alluding to Plato's apology like, and how Socrates faced the prospect of his own death. So he uses uh, Socrates as an example because this idea comes from Socrates, I, I believe anyway. Uh, so you asked me uh, what was one of the things that I took from reading Socrates. That, that's one of the main things that I take. Also, the, the Socratic method, I think, is very important. Mm-hmm. The idea of this virtue ethic that we've been talking about is very important. Um, the, the other thing that we haven't talked about that I think has been hugely neglected and uh, I'd, I'd love to be able to, to kind of write about more in the future and delve into more, is what Socrates says about friendship. When I was at Aberdeen studying philosophy, the guy that was teaching us, Aristotle, said, Aristotle talks a lot about friendship. And he said, you know, modern philosophers couldn't give two hoots about friendship. He goes, it's not really considered a, a, a topic. Most of the ancient um, topics in philosophy are still major topics in philosophy. But friendship isn't. It's about all Greek philosophers or most Greek philosophers thought friendship was one of the major subjects with which philosophy should be concerned. And now that seems like a slightly odd uh, idea. You, you know, you don't have courses on friendship and philosophy degrees. But it would have been a major topic for Aristotle, Socrates, and most other ancient philosophers, the, the Stoics as well. And, you know, like the, there's this whole, f- Socrates almost has an entire philosophy of friendship. Um, and that's something that I, I take from it as well. I think uh, 
you know, it, and that's another reason I think people need to go back to the classics is we, we don't have this at all today. And uh, it, what they say about friendship has implications for self-improvement. It maybe even has implications for political philosophy, uh, social virtue, social ethics. Um, certainly it has. My One of my big areas of interest is resilience training. Mm. And, you know, as a, a cognitive therapist, we, we work in consulting rooms with individuals. It's one-to-one individual therapy. And I'm very aware that that's, that's our weakness. That's a, a major shortcoming of our whole orientation. Because most of the research on resilience building shows that one of the most consistent uh, factors that contributes to psychological resilience is our social support network. Mm-hmm. So we train people in cognitive behavioral skills. Um, we don't really tend to go into the, the way the social network that someone's because we deal with them individually but it's the collective it's the group it's the social network that consistently seems to be the the biggest predictor of uh, psychological resilience and you know again this come on an individual level then there's an intersection between the individual and the group and that's how do you relate to other people like you know how do you make friends like how do you deal with your friends well that point of intersection between the individual like and the and the group um, is is absolutely central to ancient philosophy, and and no one gives two hits about it today. But we should. I couldn't agree more. You know, um, I mean, it's such a huge huge factor in my work. I, I mean, I use the word connection, but I'm so often trying to help people focus on simply how to make friends, and it's because that was such a painful, neglected part of my own childhood. As I was expected to know how to do it, but nobody taught me shit. I thought, how am I supposed to be born with this skill? And it blows me away, you know, now that I think about it, other than, you know, Seneca's letters and, and, and Socrates, you know, he goes on at length. I haven't seen many other people talk about friendship as a really important thing. Um, and, and a, yeah, you've only just sort of woken me up to this right now. I mean, you think about the most painful thing a person can go through and people won't talk about it, but really top of the list is loneliness. And, oh, yeah. and I saw this working with criminal offenders as well. We used to try all these fancy techniques to try and get them to reduce offending until one day we stumbled upon the fact is we just need to hook them up with some really pro-social friends. And that does mm-hmm. 99% of the work for us. We just need to get them into a good group of supportive people. And all the other technical stuff we can actually don't need to worry about very much. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, that's, that's amazing that you bring that up. I think I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to have to bookmark that because I want to bring you back on one day. And I think we should talk about the connection between philosophy and friendship and what. So much, such a big subject. I mean, we, we are just, we're, we're naming it, we're labeling it, we're talking about it, but there are many specific things that Socrates and the other philosophers actually have to be like pieces of practical advice and specific mm. things to say about it that we could that we could go into. Like I say, it's almost like a whole I could we call it his philosophy of friendship. It's like a whole branch of philosophy. One of, there are a lot of cool things that they say as well. Like one of the things that we know Socrates liked to say, I tell my, my little girl, my nine-year-old daughter, I, I tell her this story. Socrates used to say to people, if you were a shepherd, would you know how many sheep you have? And in ancient Athens, um, 
you know, part of the job of a, a shepherd was to count sheep, like to count them in and count them out and make sure you hadn't lost any, right? So counting was a big part of it. Like make sure one of them hadn't been eaten by a wolf or you hadn't lost one or something. You had to keep a very careful head count of like how many sheep were in your flock. So he said, if you were a good shepherd, like we, we do not have many sheep you had. So every Athenian, again, it's like a stupid question, right? They would go, well, yeah, obviously. Like you'd be a pretty crap shepherd if you didn't know how many sheep you had. Like that's pretty much like the main part of your job, right? That's like you had one job mm-hmm. like, to count how many sheep there were um, and make sure you didn't lose one. So they'd be like, well, yeah, of course. Uh, and then Socrates w- would then say to them, well, like, do, do you not think that friends are more important than sheep? Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. And, and so Socrates would say, well, like, how many friends do you have? Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, I'd, I've never really thought about it, Socrates. And he'd be like, why not? Why have you never thought about how many friends you have if you think that friends are more important than sheep? Like... And they'd be like, I don't know. That's what we call the aporia. Um, again, it's a hard word to try. It means almost like it literally means like being lost. Yeah. Um, it's this kind of confusion that people say was kind of annoying that they experienced when Socrates, they'd be embarrassed. Like they have this kind of sense of, of disorientation and confusion that it's called aporia. Um, and they'd be like, I, d- I don't know why. I don't know how many friends I've got. And he'd be like, you just told me it was really important. It's like one of the most important things in life, right? And the friends are way more important than sheep, but any shepherd would be able to tell you how many. And they would say, ah, maybe it's because it's difficult to define what a friend is. And Socrates would say, well, like, have you thought about how to define what a friend is? And they'd be like, well, not really. And they'd be like, well, why haven't you spent more time thinking about it then if it's so important to you? You could do the same thing today. You could ask people how much money they got in the bank and they'll be able to give you an estimate. You ask them how many people they can call friends and they're going to stutter. Um, I just got a picture in my head now of the ancient Stoics, you know, and sitting on the porch, literally at a meta level, Stoicism itself was about friendship. I mean, they were getting together with their friends and chatting about meaningful things and supporting each other. Uh, It's almost inherent in Stoicism, the concept of friendship, even in like, I see it in your Facebook group, even online, I see people interacting with each other like friends having a discussion, trying to help each other. Sometimes I'll post something in your group and, you know, some confusion I have about stoicism and I have these complete strangers trying to help me out. And even if I, whether I agree or disagree with them is irrelevant. I just like that some dude halfway across the world wants to help me wow. solve the dilemma out. And I thought, you know what? See, I've never seen that like from that uh, helicopter view before until you mentioned it now. Well, certainly I actually, I would say that friendship is, is central to the store as an entity like the, oh. the porch that these guys sat on and you know this their whole philosophy um but the first stoic book arguably or, or the kind of precursor stoicism was a book called the republic mm-hmm. by zeno and it's a, a political utopian text it describes the ideal society it's lost to us now we, we have a few kind of accounts or fragments of it um but in it we're told that he says the patron god of the stoic republic was eros um and he describes him as a a god of friendship so this kind of this was a major motif apparently of the founding text of stoicism it described an ideal community 
and it claimed that the patron god of that community was Eros, the god of love, and as they put it, also the god of, of, of friendship. So this was this kind of got lost a bit as well, but that, this is where Stoicism very much uh, started from. But the other, I mean, we, we mentioned again Plato's Republic. Like the, One of the most important parts of Plato's Republic, and again, this is in book one, one of the most iconic things is Socrates asks for a definition of justice. So we said he, he often asks for definitions of these terms. And his friends give him uh, what seems to be uh, maybe a kind of cliched or a traditional Greek definition of justice. And it's kind of a bit an eye for an eye, a uh, tooth for a tooth kind of uh, thing. Mm-hmm. They, they say uh, justice is helping your friends and harming your enemies. Right. And to them, this seems like a kind of cliche. Now, I have to say in my course, I, I give an example actually from Richard Nixon, who says something very similar. Like there are many, it seems to me there are many people today who actually genuinely believe that and will even say similar things, right? And one of the, the foundational things about Plato's Republic, like the basis of it all, is that Socrates immediately launches into a critique of that. Like, and again, he doesn't, he doesn't actually say this, but it's clear that he's spiraling around, like heading towards this implicit conclusion that he thinks justice consists in helping your friends and helping your enemies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, again, the subtext of that is he said, well, if you think that the most important thing in life is health, wealth, and reputation, yeah, probably you wouldn't want to give that to your enemies. But that's based on this premise that you're valuing external goods. If you believe that moral wisdom is the most important thing in life, then to help your enemies would be to educate them and reform them. That's what it would mean. And uh, that would mean turning them into your friends. So the wise man, the philosopher, who genuinely values moral wisdom more than anything else, fundamentally wants to help his friends by making them wise and turning, uh, help his enemies by turning them into his allies or friends. And, you know, he wants to argue like, it, so then it doesn't do it. It doesn't pose any contradiction or threat like to enlighten your enemies. Yeah, well, that makes so much sense. Like when I think about my work with criminals, you know, that was one of the things I was hit by hardest when I first got started is how easily these guys could have been my friends had the situation been different if we weren't meeting across the desk as probation officer and parolee you know they were real humans i could see their humanity and i could see actually the parts of them i liked even in some of the most sort of evil men and that was another thing that stood out to me you know while others were really focused on that punishment um, retributive style of justice i was always thinking well if that harms us more then that's a ridiculous notion of justice justice should be everybody wins and harming people never leads to everybody winning. It's inherently... That's exactly the position that the that Socrates seems to be implying and that the Stoics seem to be implying as well as that kind of... Uh, and, 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 you know, a big part of it is that justice is, is retribution, punishment. Like, the, the Stoics and Socrates really want to question the whole idea of revenge. Mm. Like, because they think it's contradictory. Like, they think it's just stupid basically like they think it's incoherent 
why and if you question it very and a, a number of plato's dialogues socrates attacks the idea of revenge why and he you know he got, but again this is kind of cutting across so many different things sure. because not only has it got implications for society like it's got implications for our attitude towards friendship as a concept but it also gets right to the very heart of the emotion of anger Mm-hmm. Like, because for the Stoics and Socrates, anger is fundamentally predicated on, on a desire for revenge. Yeah. And it's this kind of righteous, like, justified desire to hurt or punish other people. And Socrates thinks on, on many levels this is just nonsense. Because, you know, it, it, apart from anything else, it's predicated on a very superficial idea of, of, of values. Um, you have to believe that external things are intrinsically important in order for these forms of punishment to actually make any sense anyway yeah like the people the people that imprisoned socrates or the people that enslaved diogenes maybe thought that they were harming them but then socrates and diogenes didn't view it that way by depriving them of their liberty um and even the people that were threatening to execute socrates i mean this is a, a, a this is probably the most challenging aspect of the Socratic philosophy but Epictetus paraphrases Socrates uh, in the closing sentence of the Enchiridion or Ariane who wrote it Uh, he quotes Epictetus as stating this kind of paraphrase um, from Plato's Apology the the closing sentence of the handbook or Enchiridion of Epictetus is a, a quote, a paraphrase from Plato's Apology. And in it, Socrates says, Anitas and Melitus, the two guys that are prosecuting him, can, uh, can kill me, but they cannot harm me. Mm-hmm. Which is weird. Like, it, the, weirdly, the thing that reminds me of is there's a scene in Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi says something about like that to Darth Vader. Right. <laughs> but it's a remarkable, like, and it's a real like intense note to end the Enchiridion on. That's the closing remark. It says, you can kill me, but you cannot harm me. And what he means is the only way that you could actually harm me would be to corrupt my moral character. And you can't do it. Like, only I could do that to myself. Even if you kill me, it doesn't actually make me a worse person. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know if it's your accent setting off my memory, but I just got an image of the final kind of scene really of Braveheart um, (laughs) movie you know where I know it's not historically accurate but you know the way he screams out freedom with his last breath even though he's having his guts pulled out this kind of idea like no matter what you do to him you can't take away his his virtue Um, I I found that quite a moving scene Um, and that's I think also one of the reasons I got on board with Socrates is like, you know, bring it back to what you said at the start. He literally died for it. And there's not many people who do that when put to the test. There's not many people who will actually die for what they stand for um, or even suffer intensely for what they stand for. Um, he really... The other thing we haven't, we mentioned this idea about helping your enemies and stuff. And that obviously sounds like Christianity, right? Well, you know, Socrates died four centuries before Jesus, right? And, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I was brought up as a Christian. I'm not, I'm an agnostic now. Mm -hmm. Probably more like lean towards being an atheist, but I'm basically an agnostic. 
but I'm, I'm certainly I'm not a Christian. I haven't been for a long, long time. But when I was a teenager reading Socrates, I thought like, it, it's kind of weird the the ways in which this story resonates with the story of Christ. Mm-hmm. Like Socrates is literally a martyr. Yeah. Like he died for philosophy, and it was because he died. Like they made him more powerful. Like uh, I think Obi Wan Kenobi says, "If you strike me down, you just make me more powerful." Well, wow, that's exactly what happened to Socrates. Like those guys that were trying to destroy him catapulted him to fame. Yeah. And he changed the history of Western civilization. They changed the history of Western civilization by making him drink hemlock. Yeah. Like he would have maybe died in obscurity, like if they hadn't done that. And again, he's like, "You're angry with me, and you want to hurt me, but you're not actually hurting me at all." Like it's kind of a, uh, you're, it's a delusion on your part. Mm-hmm. Like your anger doesn't even make sense. It's not even achieving its goal. Like you're you're walking around in a daydream. Like you think you're hurting me, but you're not. I find this actually just on a trivial level with people who are angry. Internet trolls are mm-hmm. like that. They they feel like they're. They, they, it's like they're they're acting out this drama in their own mind, whereby they think that they're humiliating or hurting other people. But often the people that they're talking to are just ignoring them anyway. Nobody's actually listening to them. Why? Yeah. But they believe that they're hurting people. Why? And they're not even right about that. They're kind yeah. of impotent. I was just gonna say, I I did a video, and and actually the video wasn't really well done. I've since taken it down because I wasn't proud of my work. But it uh, it got a lot of trolling um i I provoked a certain community that uh, already doesn't like me and i got a lot of a lot of comments that were all in capitals you know that kind of thing um (laughs) the funny thing was because the algorithm of youtube because there was so much activity on that video it kind of went viral it was negatively viral but i I looked at the stats and i got a whole bunch of subscribers from that video um despite the fact that on the surface it looks like everyone hates me and I was sort of thinking, like, those poor trolls have just supported me and they don't even really mean to. Um, I think that is what they, I, I know that. And, I, you know, I, don't, I try not to use this deliberately, but again, it's this irony, like, it's like catapulting Socrates to fame. Every time I write something and people troll it, like, I'm very aware that they're just, like, ex- introducing more people to it. Yeah. You know, the more they hate something I've said, the more they're just publicizing it. It's crazy. And I tell people not to, when people complain about stuff they genuinely don't like, I say, like, do you not know how the internet works? Like, (laughs) if you comment on posts that you don't like, they just get bumped up the feed. And and not only that, you'll be sure. So sometimes people in my group will say, I don't understand why I'm seeing all these posts about Jordan Peterson or whatever, blah, 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 something that they don't like. And I think, you know, there are a thousand posts a month and like two of them were about Jordan Peterson. Like, so... The thing is, you comment on them saying that you hate them. And then Facebook's algorithms will think, well, you commented on it, you must like it. Mm-hmm. And so they show you more of it. So you've completely manufactured the situation yourself through your own actions. Like, and it's distorted your view of reality. That said, you know, we talked earlier about the, some of the figures, some of the sophists really, really remind me of modern self-improvement gurus. And one of them happens to be Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. And we talked earlier, this fundamental idea that the sophists sometimes sound like philosophers, but their agenda is moving in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So I had absolutely no interest in Jordan Peterson's work. 
Um, I'd kind of seen some of it and read some of it. And people relentlessly asked me to comment on or respond to it for some reason. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought it was kind of relevant to stoicism. And the more I looked at it, the less relevant it seemed. I was almost, I was astounded by how, when I read, I've read his 12 rules book twice, cover to cover, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noticed is that the trolls that used to, people that got really angry and argued with, none of them had actually read his book. Yeah. So after a while, what I learned to say to him is, have you actually read his book? Right. And none of them, the people that feel most strong, and it's often the case in society, the people that get most angry about things are usually the most ignorant about it. Like Mm -hmm. none of them had read his book. Right. They'd watched a couple of clips from his video. Something contrarian. They liked it. Like, uh, but they didn't really understand what he was saying. He's a professor in clinical psychology and I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. We work in the same field. His book seemed to me astoundingly irrelevant because there's, for all that he's portrayed as kind of drawing on psychological research, he doesn't. Like, mm. that book, 12 Rules, makes virtually no reference to genuine contemporary psychological research. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't even mention CBT anywhere in anxiety and therapeutic treatments. The stuff that he says is all pseudoscientific. It's like the opposite of an evidence-based scientific approach. But the, the reason that he pops into my mind right now, apart from the fact is that he just really reminds me of some of the, the sophists in terms of his personality and the stuff he's saying and so on. There's a bit at the beginning of that book, right at the very start, that just kind of amazed me. And uh, it's, a, it's a perfect example of, of what I was talking about earlier. So Jordan Peterson says that initially he went on Quora that the website where you answer questions. Yeah, I remember this bit from the book, yeah. And he was writing answers to questions on there from his perspective as a, a professor of clinical psychology. And he was frustrated or annoyed because no one was liking his answers and he was putting a lot of time and effort into them and nobody was liking them. They were just kind of like sinking without a trace, right? And so he thought about it and he decided to write stuff that was more and this is a verbatim quote. He says more tongue-in-cheek, and he was deliberately being contrarian and provocative in it. And he says, suddenly I got thousands of likes and my response is shot to the top. Yeah. And then he got a call from a publisher, and they asked him to write a book about it based on uh, his, his answers and to do it as quickly as he could to capitalize on the publicity that he was getting. And I thought that couldn't sound more like a Greek sophist. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> so he said what he actually believed and no one was interested. And so he decided instead he was going to start saying stuff that was provocative and attention grabbing, like in order to kind of get publicity from it and stuff that was tongue in cheek that he didn't necessarily believe. I read that book and I thought, I, is he serious? The stuff about lobsters, it looks like it's a joke. In all honesty, although a lot of people get really irate about it and they really believe it, when I was reading his book, I thought maybe he's—I can't tell if he's joking about this or if he's serious. Like, but is the claims that he's making are ridiculously pseudoscientific? Like, it, it's bizarre. Um, I, I'm, I'd like to think he's joking, and that's one of the things that, that is intended as he puts it to be tongue in cheek. But the, then the whole thing. Um, if it's driven by the desire, it literally originates in the desire to get as many likes as possible on Quora, 
and to say what would ever you know what would ever get that reaction that's what that's exactly what Socrates warned us about yeah exactly that's exactly what he was warning us about so the pursuit of truth and wisdom goes out the window and it's replaced with the desire to say things that's provocative and so everyone knows that inevitably leads to being a contrarian like and saying stuff that clashes with what everyone else is is saying but but but, and socrates said things that were like paradoxical and surprising but he didn't say it in order to be shocking as soon as you start it it looks like philosophy and it kind of looks like socratic but it's driven by the opposite like that's what I what I got reading his conversations was no matter how sort of aggravating his questions might be or provocative they might seem to be, he really seemed to be trying to help the person. Like that just comes through to me so clearly. Like he's clearly, you know, like you say, he's rescuing them from a lack of wisdom, perhaps. That'd be a way to put it. It really wasn't about him getting his likes. It was about the other person getting what they need out of life, you know. And I I'll think tell you another really odd thing about Socrates, and it kind of relates to what you just said, and it ties like everything. You know, it's how circular all of this conversation is. Like it ties into what we said earlier about his philosophy of friendship, and it ties into Stoicism, right? Epictetus says something really remarkable about Socrates as well. He says to his students. He's talking to his students. So the discourses of Epictetus are not written by him. They're transcribed by Arian, uh, who is a, a very important man. He was uh, under Hadrian. Um, he was one of the most prominent Roman statesmen. Uh, he was a highly accomplished Roman general. He was a governor of Cappadocia, like uh, modern-day Turkey. And he was also a student. This very powerful military commander and, and Roman statesman. He was a student of Epictetus. And uh, I, I, a prolific writer, and he wrote down that what he saw Epictetus saying in the discourses. Epictetus wrote nothing. And according to Ariane, Epictetus turned to his students and said, you know the most important thing we can learn from Socrates? And they were like, well, you know, what is that? Like, you know, is it maybe this stuff about virtue or whatever? And Epictetus says the main thing that we learn from Socrates is how to disagree with people without it degenerating into an argument. He says Socrates' ability to dispel quarrels and to remain friends with people, even though he was fundamentally questioning their core values in life. He says that's the main thing like, that you should be learning from Socrates, is like how to really radically question people and still remain friends with them. Yeah, I think that was... You know, that's not even a technique, it's an intention, isn't it? He he always, he didn't, that's I think what makes him stand out from the sophists is his intention was to the benefit of the person he was speaking to. And, and you can't really put that into a technique as such, because if it's not there, they'll feel it. At least that's in my mm. opinion. I, I've noticed the same thing like being a coach, I can be very, very aggressive with my coaching and really provoke someone and really dig into their core beliefs. But if I'm coming from the right place where I'm really, I'm in their corner, I'm doing this because I want them to have the best possible life. The the reaction's never taken, it never goes personal. You know, we can be heated, we can disagree, but it's, it, they'll come back the next week. Whereas I've I've done the opposite too. I remember especially 
in earlier days working with criminal offenders, when I was trying to prove that I was smart, perhaps, or trying to control them in some way, it didn't matter how I worded it, they would resist me because they could feel that intention, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, yeah, and that's, that when I forgot that, it, it would work against me. And when I remembered it, you know, you can really, really poke at someone's wounds as long as they know that you're in the, on their team, you know? Look, Donald, we, we're going to have to start wrapping it up here, but uh, <laughs> I, I could talk, talk to for weeks. Um, and I've already, I've already bookmarked the, the friendship idea. I think that's worthy of a discussion in and of itself. Um, but yeah, to wrap things up, one of the reasons I want to talk to you about Socrates today is because I saw you were publishing and promoting a course that you were running. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how people can get their hands on it? Yeah, I run a bunch of online courses, but there's two big ones. One's in Marcus Aurelius and one's in Socrates. And those are paid courses. Like some of the other yeah. ones, the shorter ones I have are, are ones that people can do for free. Actually, I have a crash course on Socrates that's free. It's just like 10 minutes long. So people can go to my website, which is donaldrobertson.name. And my e-learning site is just learn.donaldrobertson.name if you want to go straight to the e-learning part. And there's a bunch of free courses there and downloads. And there's a free crash course on Socrates. There's also like a bigger course that I run. And I, I created it because... Like you say about, you know, questioning people's core values. Socrates said that when he was questioning other people, he did that in part out of self-interest because he wanted to get clearer in his own mind about these things. And he wanted to understand other people's opinions and he wanted to clarify the arguments. But he felt that his self-interest and their self-interest coincided when it came to wisdom. So by helping other people question their presuppositions and gain wisdom he was also simultaneously helping himself mm. to gain wisdom so you know it's this clash between egotism and altruism like you know being self-centered or other-centered and socrates is trying to argue well if you really love wisdom then these two things coincide mm. like you know how and that's when when i wrote that course it was partly because i wanted to really have an excuse to spend more time studying socrates and learning about it myself Right. and kind of revisiting some of the stuff that I'd read in the past and it's been you know I've loved doing that so I because I really really enjoy doing it I think that's infectious for the you know the people that are doing the course and, and they kind of get more out of it as, as well and also like I mentioned earlier I was kind of frustrated in a way that you know there are many good books about Socrates but none of them really talk about him in the way that we talk about the Stoics sure. as a, a a down-to-earth form of kind of self-improvement is something that's relevant today at a practical level. Even the best books are kind of scholarly, like a little bit academic, a little bit kind of, you know, detached from, you know, like Socrates. And again, as we said earlier, I was talking to prostitutes. And, you know, I, like one of his interlocutors is a dwarf that's really angry about religion and immigrants and you know like rich and poor and like everybody like in the agora right in the in the marketplace in the shops one of his best friends was a shoemaker called simon um who also became a writer of socratic dialogues after after socrates died so socrates wanted to talk to ordinary people about philosophy like he wasn't just talking to philosophy students like, you know, he did philosophy with everybody he met. Like, mm -hmm. you know, because he thought 
philosophy isn't a separate subject. It's just a way of approaching every other subject. So if I, you know, when I'm talking to military generals about training and how to fight in heavy armor, for example, it's how the lackeys begins. It's a, it's a conversation about uh, about fighting in, in, in heavy armor. And Socrates thinks, well, this just inevitably leads into a, a, a discussion about the underlying values and, and what, what courage means in battle. Because like, he says to his interlocutors, why do you want your sons to... To learn how to do this and they say because we want courageous in battle and Socrates says well what, what, how do you define courage like so he thinks every conversation just potentially if you pursue it deeply enough like ends up becoming a a, a conversation about our core values like philosophy permeates everything else mm. it's not like a separate topic and it, I felt it wasn't being done in that way so you know I wanted to to kind of have another bash at, at, at doing Socrates uh, but trying to make it more down to earth and relatable in that respect. Um, and really that just seemed to me to be getting back to the Agora and, and how Socrates was originally doing philosophy with his, his that course. There's a lot of videos and audio and discussions and it goes on for four weeks. It's just I started running actually. I mean, people can enroll on at any time and do it in their own time. But also, I kind of walk people through the the four weeks uh, a couple of times a year, and we do some live webinars and things like that. Um, and uh, it's feel like reasonably in depth, and it looks not just at Plato's dialogues, but uh, it also draws heavily on Xenophon and Diogenes Laertius, which is one of our other sources. And then there, there are a couple of other more obscure sources for Socrates. Actually, I just as an aside, a bit of trivia. One of my favourite dialogues. Uh, we don't know the author. It's called the Axiochus, and it's classed as a pseudo-Platonic dialogue. So it's probably written by a student at the academy. It's believed not to have been written by Plato himself. Um, so it's by an unknown author, but it's a Socratic dialogue, and it's actually one of the most stoic of the Socratic dialogues. It's about coming to terms with our own mortality. So and again, although very few people read it, I thought it's very important to look at this because it's got some of the juiciest, kind of most interesting stuff in it, although it's one of the, the less well-known dialogues. Nice. Awesome. Well, I might have to check that out myself. And uh, don't know, it's a shame we've run out of time. I actually had another thing booked, or otherwise I would have just kept talking to you. Maybe oh, it's no the problem. best yeah. so we can carry I on with our lives or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. Hey, look, I, I, once again, I appreciate so much that you've um, shared your time and wisdom uh, with all of us today and um yeah i i really look forward to to talking with you again and thank you so much for being on the show